How do we feel when we listen to that story from Genesis? On the one hand, it's so familiar that it's become domesticated and we fail to notice its haunting otherness. On the other hand, it's come to epitomise the battle between science and religion. For Christian fundamentalists, it constitutes the absolute word of God, which disproves the theory of evolution by natural selection. For atheist evolutionists, science offers near irrefutable evidence that there is no God, rendering obsolete our ancient myths of origin. This becomes even more problematic if we consider that reading from Romans with its tracing back of the story of salvation to the sin of Adam. In a world in which we know ourselves to be highly evolved apes, albeit apes whose brains have jumped the tracks of evolution to acquire consciousness, how are we to interpret these stories of sin, death and salvation in a way that doesn't render us ridiculous or infantile? Jesuit theologian Jack Marnie has recently attempted an answer of sorts by way of what he calls a Christian theology of altruism. He invites a radical reappraisal of the doctrines of original sin, creation and salvation from an evolutionary perspective. He argues that the theory of evolution has made the doctrine of original sin redundant. Christ did not die for our sins to satisfy God. Rather, we must now understand him as God's entry into the evolving human species in order to teach us how to imitate Trinitarian altruism. His witness can be seen, says Marnie, as a major evolutionary step in the moral advancement of humanity and an indication that universal altruism is the moral invitation and evolutionary destiny of the human species. Even more importantly, he says, in dying, Christ confronted the universality of death, and in rising again, he saved his fellow human beings from extinction, their evolutionary fate, to share with them the divine life of the Trinity. Marnie links all this to that second reading from Romans 5. He suggests that the Greek phrase epho, meaning since when or as a result of which, was wrongly rendered in the old Latin translation used by Augustine and his contemporaries as in whom. This gives rise to the idea that sin originates in Adam and is passed on through him to all succeeding generations. If we can show that there's no biblical warrant for the doctrine of original sin punishable by death, then, says Marnie, we can account for death as an essential step in the process of natural selection among all living entities, not just humans. And as a consequence, we can dismantle a massive theological structure that resulted from the mythologizing of death. The German theologian Rudolf Bultmann was the first to embark upon the project of demythologizing the Bible in order to render Christianity more credible from the perspectives of science and reason. And Marnie continues that trend. But I'm dubious about the viability or the desirability of this project, and I want to say why. The Genesis myth isn't factual, but it is truthful. 
Myths are bearers of meaning beyond what our rational minds can bear, and in a post-Freudian world, we are more able to appreciate their truth-bearing capacity. Myths neither explain nor argue. By a paradoxical process of simultaneous concealment and revelation, they evoke subtle and elusive resonances. They belong to that dimension of the soul which escapes the control of the rational mind, where we are artists and dreamers, creatures of imagination and desire, who find ourselves tugged between love and horror, heaven and hell. The Genesis story touches on so many enigmas about what it means to be human. For example, there's the insight that desire and prohibition seem to be trapped in a mutually parasitic relationship. As St. Paul says elsewhere, for that which I do, I allow not. For what I would do, that I do not. But what I hate, that I do. There's also the enigma of human sexuality, the painful story of love and violence, freedom and domination, delight and disaster, which constitutes the ongoing romance and tragedy of our sexual couplings. And then there's the relationship between ourselves and the rest of creation, as paradise turns into a wilderness of conflict and strife, and the original harmony between God, humankind and nature fractures along lines of blame and alienation, shame and expulsion. We are dreaming apes and Genesis touches on our most hidden dreams and nightmares, far beyond the rationalising scrutiny of science. We are born into a world that has never been other than it is, and demythologising is in itself just another myth, the myth of progress driven by reason and science. This modern myth is rapidly becoming a waking nightmare as we see the collapse of our economic and democratic institutions and the devastation of our natural environment. Agnostic philosopher John Gray points out how so many of modernity's progressive utopias have spiralled into violent and sometimes genocidal ideologies. Do we see any signs of that moral altruism that's part of the human evolutionary process? I'm unpersuaded. As Paul Ricoeur suggests, like Adam and Eve, we discover that the serpent is already always in paradise, its origins unaccounted for and unexplained, its presence a dark mystery within the human story. We search back through all our distant ancestors looking for its source. We're rather like scientists today seeking the origins of some genetic condition in a family's DNA. It doesn't matter what we call it, original sin, alienation, existential angst, a genetic predisposition. We are not at peace with ourselves and our world. And even with, with great wisdom and patience, we acquire some level of peace. It's a fragile and ephemeral gift. The knowledge of good and evil is the beginning of all violence. Original sin has become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Paradoxically, the doctrine itself is sinful and perpetuates the sin it seeks to explain. The man who blamed the woman for his own undoing, who claimed authority over her and punished her desire, is written into the history of every history and culture. The sense of shame that made us hide our nakedness from the presence of God 
is a haunting of the human soul that science alone cannot eliminate. The knowledge of good and evil is the knowledge which makes us criminals before the law, but it also marks the moment in evolution when we jumped the tracks. We exercised a dangerous freedom and from out among the animals, the human came to be. The story of the fall is the beginning of the long and troubled history of our humanity. Some rabbinic interpreters suggest that in disobeying God and being cast out of Eden, our mythical forebears break free from the tyranny of the ancient pagan gods and take moral responsibility for themselves. Without the knowledge of good and evil, we remain innocent and unknowing apes, unable to imagine death, unable to remember the past, unable to fear the future, unable to imagine the world as other than it is. With the knowledge of good and evil, we become animals cursed and blessed with consciousness. But in the Christian Bible, the human story starts in a garden and ends in a city. The transformation of the garden into the city constitutes the bookends of scripture within which we discover the redeeming story of our own becoming, apes becoming humans becoming gods through our divinization in Christ. But we also need to change the focus of our anthropocentric lens. This is not a moral project, as Marnie suggests, and neither is it a purely human project as if Christ somehow parachutes down to pluck us out of the creation within which we belong. Christ is a cosmic redeemer, and Romans tells us that all of creation groans in childbirth as it awaits the glory of redemption. The garden too is redeemed in the trees and the rivers of the city of God, where the leopard lies down with the baby goat, the lion protects the calf, and they will do no harm on all God's holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. Myths are both fragile and tensile. We can bury them beneath layers and layers of reason, but they are the stuff of our dreams and nightmares, and we are such stuff as dreams are made on. There's no conflict between theology and science, and we don't have to banish our myths to bow to the tyranny of science. As Thomas Aquinas recognised, Grace perfects nature, reason and faith go hand in hand. Our theology must have its doors wide open to science, but also to art and literature, to music and poetry, and to myth. A theology that seeks to explain itself before the court of science will always surrender too much, and dare I say that a science that locks its doors against theology will always know too little. But let me end with a quite wonderful myth of origins. Listen to this. Once upon a time, three billion years ago, there lived a single organism called Luca. It was enormous, a mega organism like none seen since. It filled the planet's oceans before splitting into three and giving birth to the ancestors of all living things on Earth today. That's a quotation from the new scientist. Scientists don't communicate in mathematical formulae and scientific equations. They tell stories just as we all do, for we are a storytelling species. That's what it means to be a human animal, rather than a highly evolved ape or a perfectly programmed computer. <laughs>